with you guys. Hey, if we haven't met yet, my name's Nate. Someone say hi, Nate. Hey, good to be with you. We're continuing in our series in Mark. Um, so we're in Mark chapter 10. If you've got a Bible, let's get to work. You ready? Someone say, yep. yep. All right, let's go to work. Mark chapter 10. Uh, I want to put a couple verses on the screen that, that capture some of what we're diving into today, what the text is bringing out for us. So can you put a, those two verses on the screen for me? Here, here's what it says. Maybe you're familiar with this. This is Jesus saying, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person enter the kingdom of God. And they, his disciples, were exceedingly astonished, and they said to him, who can be saved? That's right, gang, we're talking about money today. Buckle up. Last week it was divorce, here's money. So uh, I don't know if we're trying to lower attendance or what, but we're just tracking it passage by passage in the Bible. And, and if this is your first week here, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. Maybe, maybe for some of you, you're going like, oh, I knew it. Right? Of course this church is talking about money. Of course they want my money. Maybe, maybe you've heard of public failures of, of people in ministry who just, they're, they're taking from people's hard-earned money to live lavish lifestyles. They're, they're using money and, and, and trying to, to build up a life for themselves on the backs of other people. You might feel a little bit uncomfortable with a guy like me on stage talking to you about your money and how you spend your money. And, and if you're a visitor, if you're new here, can I just say, we want this to be free for you to just hear, understand, accept what God is teaching today through his word. We don't pass a plate, not because that's wrong, but because we actually don't want you to feel the pressure of that moment of, ah, oh, did I bring some, do I have some, whatever. Just come and listen, and if you're not a Christian, if you're new here, if you're just visiting, we just want you to hear and understand what the Bible has to say. But we're going to talk about money. Someone say money. Money is a really tricky subject to talk about, isn't it? For, for a few different reasons. Again, one, the whole weird thing of church, can we have this kind of conversation? But another thing, just in our culture, conversations about money go sideways. I remember when I got some of my first paychecks. I babysat all summer long so I could buy this black acoustic guitar. That was the coolest thing, right? The feeling I got when I, when I got those little dollar bills in my hand. Or when I moved out of the house at 18, not because something was wrong, but because I wanted independence. I was working, I was paying my own bills, and so I moved into this sketchy apartment packed with other dudes, but it's like, yeah, I'm paying my own bills, I'm, I'm my own man, I'm independent now, right? Maybe money for you has positive connotations because you've, you've tried to work hard and build a life for yourself. For others of us, money has anxiety and stress attached, maybe even shame. You still remember in kind of a, a visceral way the feeling of being the poor kid at school. You don't want your friends to know you are on free and reduced lunch. You knew you couldn't buy the same labels and the same clothes as, as the kids around you. You knew your pantry didn't look as good as the, as the pantry of your friend, so you would go to their house. They're not coming over to your house. I wonder how many of us, even throughout our adult life, have made decisions trying to outrun that feeling. The shame that we've attached to money. Conversations about money get, get jacked up for all kinds of reasons, partially because people have misused and abused it, but also partially because there are threads in our heart that money kind of sinks into some of the deepest places there where your sense of value and worth, your sense of peace and comfort get, get wrapped up and tied into this thing. Money is just a neutral object, and yet it promises so much blessing. We've attached so much value to it. Not the value of the thing itself, but, but the value that you can find in life. It goes without saying we live in a greedy culture. 
greet is just kind of the, the water we swim in, the way that we value people. Maybe you've been at a, a dinner party, you've met some new people, and, and you do that awkward thing where it's like, oh, what do you do? What do you do? And, and we're talking about job title because job title is kind of this weird substitute. It's shorthand for, for paycheck. And paycheck is sort of shorthand for, for status or value. Getting one amen off of that. That's okay. That's fine. This is an uncomfortable conversation partially because of, because of again, the, the weight of someone like me talking about money, but also because of the weight of the world that we live in. When I say we live in a greedy culture, it's like telling a fish that they just are swimming in water. It's like, what does that mean? You, you might look and go, yeah, some people out there are greedy. I sure know those people. We should talk about them. But would you be able to tell if you were becoming a greedy person? Like, how would you know in your heart of hearts if you were actually struggling with greed? Would you have a good gauge for yourself to know if you were going there? Maybe. There's something really interesting about when Jesus says it's difficult for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, where he's not just talking about money, but he's using money to talk about God's kingdom, and his disciples respond, who can be saved? There's something about God's kingdom and salvation that's connected to this idea of money. We've got to follow where Jesus is taking, even if it's uncomfortable for us. You, you have two options this morning. You can either go, hey, that, I don't want to go there. I, I don't want to talk about money. I don't want you to talk about money. That's for somebody else. That's not for me. And you can let the awkwardness or the shame stop you from hearing what Jesus has to say about his kingdom in your heart. You, you could do that this morning if you want to. Or with me, we could, we could follow into what Jesus has for us even if it hits a tender spot, even if it pokes at something inside of you, you've been trying to outrun. But see on the other side the life with God that Jesus offers us now and forever. And, and just to tell you, I've been convicted by this passage I've been studying, so I'm inviting you into that with me, okay? You guys ready? Someone say nope. <laughs> All right, let's go. Matt, uh, Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 13, we're going to see three different scenes. Jesus d- talking with three different groups of people and and the first one is going to be a little bit confusing when it comes to this idea of money, but it's going to speak to the heart issue. The second one is a story about a rich young man that maybe you've heard a hundred times, and the last one we're going to grab from a few chapters later that, that ties a bow on some of these ideas Jesus is pulling together. So, so what does our money have to do with the kingdom of God, and how do, these, how do these relate to your relationship with God right now? All right, let's do it. Mark chapter 10. Starting in verse 13, we're going to see our first scene, Jesus dealing with this, this group of people and, and the unlikely way this connects the idea of our money. Mark 10, 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. So Jesus has been teaching. It's his public ministry. He's on the way to Jerusalem. And as he's teaching, crowds continue to get around him and follow him. And, and parents are bringing kids to Jesus that he might touch them and impart like a blessing on them. This was kind of a common practice. People thought that, oh man, someone who's a holy person or a special teacher, they must somehow be closer to God. And so if I get my kids around them, if they, if they just impart some blessing, then it'll be good for their life. Maybe you, you were so concerned about the, like, the college your kid got into, they got to find the best college prep tutor or whatever. It was that kind of thing, but this was in a spiritual sense. These parents wanted something good for their kids. They'd maybe heard stories of people touching even just Jesus' cloak and being healed. So they're going, if I can just get my kid around them, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's going to be good for them, right? But the disciples rebuke them. Someone say rebuke. When you hear the word rebuke, does that have some like fuzzy feelings or not so good feelings, right? This is like a, a firm correction. It's a sharp correction. The parents are trying to bring the, their kids to Jesus and the disciples are like, whoa, hold on a minute. That is not allowed. Like you, you got this jacked up. It's a harsh correction to them. 
And I think the disciples had some good motivation, some bad motivation too. They're like, hey, Jesus is teaching people. He's on the way to Jerusalem. Like, like he's told us he's got to die, and so we, we got to get going. We got to do this thing, right? But I wonder if there was some, some mixed up motivation in there too. Hey, Jesus is too important for you guys. What are you, what are you doing? You can't come around Jesus like this. He's a, he's a very important guy, and we're with him. Don't worry about it. We're important too, right? Like, I wonder if their hearts were kind of getting this twisted where on the surface it maybe looked good, but there was something underneath. They're like, yeah, I'm with Jesus. What's up? He doesn't have time for you. And in their culture, women and kids were, were devalued. So the disciples are going, Jesus is important. He's distant. He doesn't have time for people like you. And can I just ask, this isn't the point of the message, but do you ever feel like that about Jesus? He's important, but he's distant. Maybe even as you walk into the room like this, you're ready to feel like, yeah, I don't know if I have a place here. I don't know if Jesus has time for someone like me. Again, maybe your, your church attendance and your religious devotion has been trying to work your way out of that feeling. Like maybe, maybe I can be one of these people. Maybe Jesus left time. Well, that's not the point of the message, but, but let's keep going. Maybe that's for you this morning. How does Jesus respond when he sees the disciples do this, this public rebuke to the parents? What does he say? Look at verse 14. When Jesus saw it, he was indignant. Someone say indignant. You got to talk with me a little bit more. Come on. Indignant. Thank you very much. He was indignant. He said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Indignation is, is this, this frustration or this anger with a moral edge to it. He's not just like, no, guys, I got some time. It's cool, whatever. But there's something about the disciples' heart posture. There's something about what they're doing that Jesus goes, you guys got it off. There's a moral outrage that Jesus is feeling when he sees how they respond to these parents, these kids. Again, it's not just a casual thing with his schedule. There's something that the disciples are missing about the kingdom of God that's exposed by the way they respond to these parents. To such belongs the kingdom of God. God's kingdom it's a way of talking about the place where God's reign and rule and authority is experienced. Eden was one of those places where it was God and his people and, and they were following him in his place. When we see at the end of the Bible, there's this restored Eden where Jesus is the good king ruling and his people are gathered with him under his good, good rule and authority. When Jesus comes and announces his ministry, he says the kingdom of God is right here. People are, around are, are gonna begin to experience what it means to be under Jesus' reign and rule and authority as a good king. He's saying to people like these kids, to people like that, th- those are actually the kind of people that are going to get the kingdom. Those are the kind of people that are going to understand there's something about them that if you miss it, you miss what it means to be part of this kingdom. Let him unpack it a little bit more. Look at verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms. He blessed them laying his hands on them. Blessing is, is speaking the reality of God's goodness and grace over someone's life. It's related to the word happiness, like if you've heard of the Beatitudes in, in the Sermon on the Mount, in Greek, th- those two words are related. It's speaking the reality of like, God, would you, would you fulfill them and make them happy in your plans, your purposes, your presence in their life? And so look at the radical thing Jesus does. The disciples say, Jesus doesn't have time for you kids, but he takes them one by one, he, he lays his hand on them and he blesses them. Maybe you've been part of one of our services when we commission parents or we sent our, our summer teams off or our friends to Osaka, Japan or to Ann Arbor to go start new works. We do this awkward thing where we pray for them and, and we say, hey, if you're comfortable, stick your arm out like you got on their shoulder, right? There's this sense of, of touch and presence of God, would you be with them? Not just like thoughts and prayers and good vibes to the universe, but like actually like we're connected in some way and Jesus slows down one by one and blesses each of these kids. 
he frames it in the negative where he says, okay, if you don't receive the kingdom like this, then you, you don't get the kingdom. So if you flip it around, if you receive the kingdom like a child, there's something about that where that clues you in to what it means to receive, to be with God. How does a kid receive stuff? Pretty freely, unashamed. I don't know if you have kids around in your life right now, but um, if, you, if you don't have experience firsthand with kids, I have an incredible opportunity for the Bible to come alive for you. It's called Docs of Kids. Volunteer, sign up today. If you want the Bible to come alive, you can meet two and three-year-olds in the room right out there who, when you're putting on the, the video about Jesus, talking about Jesus, they'll be like, yeah, but can we watch Bluey instead, right? And not one time, but a hundred times, they're going to ask you to do whatever is on their mind to do. I, I got two kids at home. One of them, Winston, looks kind of like the Pillsbury Doughboy. He's, he's incredible. That man eats with a, a glad and a happy heart. And, and he doesn't know how to talk, but he sure knows how to get food, right? Like he waddles over to the, to the, the fridge and, and just taps on it and says, bah, like that's the only word he knows. But I, I know when Winston says, bah, the man is hungry. That's one of his primary emotions, you know? Sleepy, happy, hungry. He doesn't know how to like do anything for himself. He's completely dependent on us, but, but in those moments, like he knows how to receive. <laughs> he knows how to, how to take it. He knows how to accept it without, without bargaining, without shame, without fear. Like a healthy kid knows how to ask without any baggage or, or, or obligation. They just, like they're built to take. We have to teach them how to say thank you, not to teach them how to, to take things. Jesus is saying there's something about the way that a child can be so dependent and yet so um, receiving that teaches you how you approach the kingdom of God. I, I guess let me just ask you, have, do you receive the kingdom of God like that? God's reign and rule in your life, God's presence in your life, do you receive it in that healthy way without shame or bargaining or, or transaction? Or did you lose that somewhere along the way? Maybe instead of the word dependence, the word independence captures you a little bit more. You're more like a teenager than a toddler where there's a lot you can do for yourself. And so, yeah, yeah you'll come to God if you, if you need something, but I got most of this figured out. We haven't talked about money yet, but you can start to see, even in this first picture, there's something about this that's going to touch into the way our, our possessions and our stuff relate to God. Jesus is going to take this picture one step further. We've seen the first scene. Jesus saying, you've got to receive the kingdom of God like a child. And now we see in the very next passage someone who, who's the counterpoint to this. Look at verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I, I don't know if you've heard this story before, but, but from the beginning, this guy actually looks really good. Like he's, he's coming to Jesus, he's on his face before Jesus, he's, he's seeking Jesus, those are all good things. It, it looks positionally like he is doing everything he needs to do to meet Jesus and have a life-changing encounter. But there's something about his question that needs to catch our attention that Jesus is going to zero in on and press into. Look at what his question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Already there's a sense of like, okay, I, I'm looking to this teacher to give me a, a, a list of steps I need to take. What, what do I need to do? What do I need to add to this equation and then, and then I'll have eternal life? What, what do I need to do? There's a focus on himself there. Jesus is going to zero in and press into this. Verse 18, Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Uh, this is totally an aside, but I love these moments where Jesus doesn't come out and say I'm God, but he's like, hey, God is good, I'm good, only God is good, 
Interesting, right? He didn't come out and say, I'm God, because they would have thrown stones at him and killed him right there, but he's doing everything else to show them the reality of who he is. No one is good but God, and I am good. Connect the dots. Okay, keep going. Verse 19. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. This man asked, what should I do? And Jesus comes and he meets him where he's at. This is the the second half of the Ten Commandments. The first half are very vertically directed. Have no other gods before me. Honor God's name. Keep the Sabbath where you're supposed to meet with God. And the second half are more horizontal. Once, Once those things are right, how do you treat other people? Jesus is meeting this guy exactly where he's at. He's going, okay, you know these commandments. Let's just start there. How are you doing with, with what you already know? Before I come and flip your world, what, how are you doing? Verse 20, he said to him, teacher, all of these I have kept for my youth. I would have been like, yeah, but you missed pride, buddy, so sorry, right? Like, who do you think you are? You're talking to Jesus and you're saying you've kept all the commandments? Are you kidding me? I want to be charitable to this guy because I think he actually, I think he was being honest here. Maybe more honest than we are with God sometimes. I think, especially knowing some of what the rabbis and the Pharisees had taught about obeying the commandments, I think he probably thought he was actually doing pretty well. He hadn't literally murdered somebody or slept with his neighbor's wife. He hadn't cheated someone in a business arrangement or, or given false testimony in a court, I think he thought he was doing pretty good according to, to the laws and the rules that he had been taught and grew up with. But this guy that, that seems to be obeying everything and doing everything he knows how to do, there's still something missing in him. Like, why is this guy who's obeying everything running to Jesus? It's because his obedience isn't enough. He's obeying as hard as he can. He's keeping it from his youth, but there, there's a hole underneath that. And so he's at Jesus' feet going, what am I missing? Is that you this morning? You've been trying so hard to lead a good life and, and to fix yourself up and you're coming to church now and you're doing all these things but you realize underneath your obedience there's a hole you've been trying to fill and, and no matter how much good stuff you try to do there's something that's not clicking yet. He's at Jesus' feet because there's something missing even if he's kept these commandments from his youth. How does Jesus meet him there? Jesus looking at him loved him. Pa- pause there a sec. He's not, he's not crushing him. He's not coming down hard on him. He's not attacking him or demeaning him. He loves him. He loves this guy who, who is trying his best but clearly missing something. That is Jesus' posture towards people like this and, and like you this morning. Like if you've got defensiveness around this conversation and, and you're kind of waiting for the punch to hit you and waiting for me to ask you for your money or whatever, can, can we just pause and look at Jesus again? He actually loves us enough to say the hard thing that you need to hear. Not because he needs something from you, but because he, he loves you enough, he, he sees the hole and he's gonna press in so that he can meet you there. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He's not quoting an Old Testament commandment. He, like a good surgeon, he sees the cancer and he is offering to cut it out. He's saying, I actually see your real issue, and it's not your, your hard work or obedience, but there's something about your possessions and your stuff that, that has your heart wrapped up. And so if you will let me, I will cut that out, and you can come with me and have treasure in heaven forever. What do you say? You come to me asking for eternal life, and, and this is the way to have it. All it's going to cost you is everything. How's the man respond? Verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, 
he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The word disheartened is interesting. Jesus has touched his heart, offering to cut out the cancer in his heart. He says, hey, give me your heart, but the man couldn't because something else already had his heart. Jesus couldn't be the king on the throne of his heart because something else was already enthroned there. It was his great possessions. This commandment to go and sell all your stuff is not universally applied to all Christians for all time, right? This isn't saying to be a faithful Christian, you've got to go become a monk or a nun, something like that. But again, like a skilled physician, Jesus is pointing to the real disease he had and offering the cure he needs. What if that was the call that Jesus had for you? What if coming to Jesus for you actually meant it would cost you your career? Or the dream house, or or the vacations you want to take? What if your retirement wasn't all you thought it would be because you were following Jesus. Would that be worth it to you? And just as an aside, there, there are men and women around the world right now where that really is the call of the gospel for them. We had summer teams go to, to India and to Japan, and for many of the people that they spoke to, coming to Jesus is gonna cost them family, future. It's gonna cost them so many different things. Now again, the command for you today is not necessarily like to love Jesus, sell all your stuff, but, but I, wonder it, I wonder for us if we'd be willing to make that trade. This man was disheartened because his possessions had his heart and there was no room to give it to Jesus. How does Jesus unpack this for his disciples? They've been watching, they've been seeing these interactions, they've been watching Jesus wrestle with this man. Like, how does Jesus unpack this for them? And for us, look at verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed. Someone say amazed. They were amazed at his words. Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. Or maybe you have a footnote that says, how difficult it is for those who trust in wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. You've maybe heard commentators be like, well, actually, there was a gate called the needle gate, and camels said, what? I, I don't think there's some, like, like, weird context thing. I think Jesus is literally going like, hey, think of the biggest animal you know about, and think of the smallest everyday object. These, these two things don't work, right? Like, no matter how hard you try and how hard you work, you cannot make this camel go through that. It, it, it doesn't work out. He's trying to blow their minds and, and, and change the way that they're thinking about this whole conversation. In verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Mark has highlighted that they are amazed and exceedingly astonished because Jesus is flipping their expectations on their head. For them, when they they looked at someone with wealth, they automatically assumed that person must be loved and blessed by God. They assumed that great possessions mean that God especially loved that person, and and if you flip that, maybe, maybe God really didn't love you that much if you didn't have that much stuff. Jesus is is seeing past the surface the external appearance and he's pressing into the heart and saying there's something else going on here. Great wealth might actually give you great trouble when it comes to coming to the king. Who can be saved? Who gets in if it's not the people that we expect, the people that, that we see on the outside that look blessed? Verse 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Don't, don't just like take this and, and go, I can lift all weights through Christ or whatever. But like, 
he, he's trying to highlight the, the thing that if you are trying to earn your way to God, work your way to God, obey your way to God, it is not going to work. You can't give away your stuff enough to earn your way into God's grace and favor. That's not how it works with man. It is impossible. If it is up to you to be good enough for God, you are going to fail, and so am I. God's not grading on a curve. He's not going like, well, you were slightly nicer than your neighbor, so I guess you make the cut. That's not it. His standard is, is not a curve, but it's either holy or not holy, and none of us can work our way there. Even my best efforts are shot through with selfishness and pride. Even as I'm giving the word to you this morning and trying to share this, I'm like worried of what you think of me and all this stuff, and as you're sitting there, you're like, yeah, does he see that I've got my arms crossed and I don't want to hear this? Like, like all of us, as we're, as we're wrestling through these things, our hearts are jacked up. You can't obey your way into the kingdom of God, try hard enough to impress God or prove yourself to God. It is impossible. And you might actually begin to be freed up if you believe it was impossible for you to impress God. That might actually flip your relationship with God if you began to believe that for a second. It is impossible for you to earn God's love and grace for yourself. But it's not impossible for God. Peter, speaking like always for the disciples, doesn't know what to say, so he talks. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. He's like, okay, you, you said that to that guy. Well, I think, I think we're doing it. Are we doing enough? Like, are we getting there? And, and Jesus gives him a peek into the reality of this kingdom of God. What does this mean to, to live with God in the kingdom right now? Verse 29, Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or, or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mother, children, lands with persecutions in the age to come, eternal life. You're like, this is where you ask for money. If you give me a dollar, you'll get a hundred back, right? Like, like, we can twist these things around and go, oh, Jesus is some kind of like weird investment account where if I give him my stuff, I get more stuff. That is not what he is saying. That, it, that is not how he's talking through. I mean, press into the details. Like, really, are you gonna get a hundred more moms? Like, that's... It would be ridiculous if we try to apply it like that. He's talking about the reality, though, of what it means to be part of his kingdom right now and be among his people. He's not talking about you getting a second vacation home or whatever, but he's saying you could actually be welcomed into to homes right now as a kingdom person. There are homes that you could be welcomed into that are really just huts in, in the Darien jungle of Panama of men and women who love Jesus, and because they love Jesus, they're part of your family. And they got nothing to give, but they're going to give it to you because, because we're family. You're, you're, my, you're my brother. You're my sister. There are apartments where house churches are in Osaka, Japan, that, that you could be welcomed into and, and crash on a couch and eat whatever food they've got because you're family now. You could be welcomed into houses in Mumbai, India, or, or in Dubai, or wherever, because we are family now. We are a new kind of family. This isn't about you gaining more material possessions, but you becoming part of a new family where you have more spiritual brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers. We need to flip it from the materialistic terms that we're used to to see what Jesus is offering us is something way better, but it comes with persecutions because when our brothers and sisters are persecuted, that's us too, that's our family. I don't know what pressure you felt for your faith, but but when we hear about brothers and sisters who are being pressed and pressured because they've trusted Jesus, our hearts begin to learn to break. When we see men and women who are made in the image of God and are reconciled with God like us, even in our city who are being persecuted, we learn to suffer alongside them because we're family now. 
in this age and in the age to come eternal life, where Jesus makes all things new and we get to sit at the family table together and share stories of how we saw God's grace in action and worship him. This is a foretaste of what that gets to be. But verse 31, Jesus says, many who are first will be last, and the last first. He's saying, if you were trying to play the game in this life of coming out on top, having the most toys or the biggest bank account or whatever, that's a game you can play, but that is a losing game at the end. You will reach the real finish line and realize it was all for nothing. You can't take it with you, and eternity is way longer than this life. You can try to be first or rank yourself in that way in this life, and it is not going to go well for you. But many of the people that look like they're last in the world, that look like they're, they're not winning that game, whatever, we will reach eternity and go, oh, you had treasure I never even knew about. You had something that, that I never even thought about because I was running the wrong race. This isn't kind of some weird way to rank people in heaven, but this is trying to flip your expectation when you look at the external. To change the way that you see other people and the games that we've been playing, try to rank ourselves, especially when it comes to money and status. Jesus is saying the people that you might overlook because they don't seem to have much, again, when you reach the finish line, you might find that they had treasure you never knew about. We've seen these children who we're dependent completely but ask freely and we see this man who is trying his best and missing it because his money, his possessions had a hold of his heart. And Fred, as I, as I talk about that, could that be you? Again, this conversation gets so sideways because, because you've been looking for the blessing from your stuff instead of from Jesus. You've been looking to calm your anxiety by just increasing the size of your bank account and you're realizing it, it, it isn't working. You've been looking for, for people's opinions to change about you based on your, your job title or how much you make or the clothes you wear and sometimes it works but it doesn't seem to fill that hole inside of you. Or you feel shame in these conversations because you know the vacations you can't take. You know what it's like to struggle with food insecurity. You, you know those things. You don't have to have money to be greedy. Money just has to have your heart. And it has to offer a promise that you've been believing you could get from your possessions instead of from Jesus. We've got one more picture of this before we, we talk through what this means and how we apply, but a couple chapters later, we're jumping context a little bit, but Jesus sees someone and, and he is drawn to their heart in a way that I think illuminates this for us. I'm gonna put it on the screen. But we've seen that the, the heart posture of the parents, now we've seen this man who misses it. In chapter 12, Jesus' eyes are drawn to something and he tells his disciples, look at this, Mark 12, 41. He, Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money in the offering box. It was part of their worship, they were giving, they were giving offerings to the temple upkeep and just as worship to God. And many rich people put in large sums. It passes without comment because that is not a bad thing. If you have wealth in this world, this is not an anti-money message. That's not it. It's not wrong to have money and they're giving it. Look at verse 42 though. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him. He said, there's something you gotta see here. Come over here, I need to show you something. This is important. And he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had all she had to live on. Now again, let me be very clear. This is not saying if you have money, you're doing a bad job giving it. This is not saying 
if you're poor, God only loves you if you're really suffering, giving a ton. That, that's not it, but Jesus sees to the heart and he goes, hey, there's something about this woman's heart that's important that you need to see. She is living a life of active dependence where, where her money doesn't have her heart. She actually is giving it in worship back to the Father. All of her life is his. She is one of the most vulnerable people in their society and yet her heart isn't wrapped up in that state. And her money is showing where her heart really is. It's overflowing in generosity. Everything she has to live on, just giving it back to God in worship and praise. Let me just be clear again. This is not an anti-money message. This is not saying down with the man and burn down capitalism or whatever. That's not it. And this isn't saying you need to feel guilty that you live in a day and age where we have more access and more wealth than so many ages past and so many places in the world right now. That's not it. But we are in a unique danger of living independently. We're in a unique danger of believing the promise that money can free us from our, our, our lack of security or safety or anxiety or whatever. We're in a unique danger of believing things that in eternity we'll find out were lies. So with these kids and with this woman, Jesus is trying to clue us into, into the greater reality of what the kingdom of God looks like and how you get into it. I think we can summarize it like this. Active dependence on God is the key to the kingdom. An active dependence on God that is shown up in action and not just word. Here's what I think this means for us today. For you, if you are not a Christian this morning, you need to enter into active dependence on God for the first time. You need to repent of your independence and trying to do things for yourself or trying to come to God and going, okay, God, what do I have to do to get life with you? If you want to live a life independent of God, he, he might let you have that. But a life of independence stretched into eternity is called hell. You are independent of God forever and that is not a place you want to be. The first step for you is stepping into dependence and saying, Jesus, I actually need you to forgive me. I need you to save me. I can't save myself. I can't be Lord of my life and surrendering to him. There might be something on the throne of your heart right now that you actually need to, to dethrone in order to let King Jesus take his rightful place. What is it in your life? Active dependence today, that moment where you say, Jesus, I need you. And he's not inviting you into something that he hasn't already perfectly shown in himself. When he says the first will be last and the last will be first, he actually was the firstborn of heaven, the, the only begotten son, part of the Trinity, who left the glories and riches of heaven where he deserves worship to be born in a manger, to, to be raised by a poor Jewish family, to not have material wealth in this world. He was a wandering teacher. He didn't have a mansion even though he deserved it. And he was hung on a cross where his clothes were being bartered over in front of him. They were shooting dice for his clothes. He was naked and abandoned with, with not a penny to his name. But that was the path of his glory. That was the path of him proving to you that actually he has life to give when he rose from the dead. Proving he can cover your shame and your fear and he can cover your guilt, the debt you owe to God for not living the life you're supposed to. Jesus can pay for it if you will trust in him and give you life and welcome into eternity with him forever. Would you find dependence in Jesus today in a way that changes everything and experience the kingdom of God in your life now, God reigning and ruling over you right where you are 
forever. I think for us who, who would say, yes, I, I've, already, I've already done that, I think a passage like this helps us understand active dependence isn't just the way into the kingdom, but the way that we keep walking in the kingdom with Jesus. A lifestyle of dependence like this widow that, that drew Jesus' eye. What would it look like in your life to have that kind of dependence on God where Jesus would look at you and go, oh wait, there's something there that I love. As I was studying this, I was convicted of two, two things in my life. Giving and prayer. Giving is, is, is one of these weird things where God doesn't need our stuff, but if he has given us everything, if all of our lives are his, if he has saved us and redeemed us and reconciled us and ransomed us and then given us life with him now, what of my stuff can I hold back from him? What of your life can you look at and go, Jesus, thanks for giving me everything, now this part is mine. Is there anything that you can withhold from the king that loves you, that gave you life with him now and forever? The New Testament doesn't give you a certain percentage you gotta hit and then coast from there, but a heart posture where all of our stuff is a stewardship and we just say, Jesus, what would you have me do with it? What would you have me do with this life you've given me and this stuff you've given me? And giving is a way you continue to dethrone that stuff from your heart. I'm not preaching this message because Docs has got a budget crisis, right? Danny, the, the elder that manages budget stuff, he's not here this morning, so I, I'll say this, but guys, you, you could stop giving and I think we'd be okay. Not all of you, but you know, you, specifically I'm talking to you, right? This isn't because I want something from you, but I want something for you. This isn't about you trying harder to prove that, that you love Jesus by a certain number on a page, but part of the way you continue to actively demonstrate dependence is by just giving to the work of God. And, and sometimes that, that, that's the one-time things we talk about, but more often than not, it's the like, not sexy causes like paying for the mortgage. It's those things that are just a regular part of being a church family, of giving generously, because that's, that's what Jesus is inviting us into. Giving is one way we demonstrate our active dependence, giving continually and generously as a people who have been captured by God. I think another way we, we, we do that is through prayer. Maybe the key to a renewed and revived prayer life for you is not actually learning another acronym to walk through. It's not scheduling it into your calendar. Maybe it begins with repenting of your independence. Maybe the reason you don't pray is because you actually subtly, subtly believe you've got a lot of this stuff figured out. Yeah, I'll, Jesus, I'll come to you when I really need something, but most of this, I don't need to pray for my daily bread. Maybe, again, your prayer life would be revived if you began to repent of the ways that you have not been praying for things. What if you even just listed the things that you don't pray for? and began praying, God, would you change my heart? Would you transform me? What if you began to, to pray through the Lord's Prayer and let the rhythms of it change how you think about your life and the work you've got? What if you began to practice active dependence by not first trying every option, letting prayer be, be the last thing you do, but saturating the decisions that you, you make, the conflict you have, saturating those things with prayer? Again, what if there's something right now that is coming to your mind, a conflict, a decision, a diagnosis that you have not been praying over, but you've been worrying or stressing or planning? What if that thing right now, the Spirit's just asking you to repent of and begin praying? Docs, I'm convicted in this passage because I see how I am so independent. I'm more like a teenager than a toddler, and Jesus is inviting me to do something uncomfortable. 
but I'm so grateful to be part of this church because you guys are, are so outpacing me in your generosity and your prayer. This is a generous church by God's grace. I don't know if you guys know this, but, but one of the things that we just celebrate is how money doesn't seem to have a hold of our lives the same way. Like when we talk about the, the need for Zambia, we only needed $2,000, and you guys gave like more than $5,000 to that. That's incredible. That just blessing people that you might not get to meet this side of eternity, but you're going, those are our brothers and sisters. How can we love them and bless them? When we sent the Osaka team and, and they had needs, like they, they needed move-in money and all this stuff to, to get apartments, you guys gave abundantly and generously to that. And, and giving doesn't just happen in these, like, these sort of times together, but you guys are giving generously in your everyday lives. So many connection groups are, are serving each other and meeting each other's needs and helping cover expenses and all this stuff. There's a couple in this church who met one of their neighbors and, and she had a lot of material needs and they built relationship and they were paying for things like gas and, and medication and stuff like that and then their financial situation changed. They couldn't give like that anymore but they invited some of their friends in. And they've got this like epic text chain where it's like, hey, our friend needs this much money for gas to get to work tonight, get, anyone can help or, or hey, medication, whatever. And I get to be on that text chain, I, I, I see the need and I'm like, all right, I gotta go talk to my wife, like let's talk through these things. But by the time I get a chance to actually talk to her, the need is already met. You guys are just doing that kind of stuff all over the place. It's incredible. I, I'm, I'm like so challenged by watching the generosity overflow through you. And I think it is a shining example of, of Jesus having the throne of our hearts and not our stuff. And I'm grateful for you. I think this is a praying church. I love the fact that when we do things like prayer nights as a staff, we're not worried if anyone will show up. We're just trying to figure out, like, how do we sustain this movement of prayer because this church is not built on our own effort or hard work or whatever, but together we want to see God glorified. And the best ministry we're going to do is just on our knees asking him to move. As we've done weeks of prayer or nights of prayer like we're doing this summer, guys, you are a praying people. And again, so much in connection groups, prayers are being answered in ways that I might never hear about. Bodies are being healed. Marriages are being restored. People are coming from death to life because you are talking to God about people. Guys, I am so challenged by the dependence that you are showing on the Father and we're getting to see firsthand what he is doing. So this message is a challenge for me, but I also love getting to celebrate with you what God is already doing in our midst. Amen. And, and if you are challenged by that, just come on in. The water's warm, Right? It's a good life. You don't have to prove anything to anyone, but we get to sit at the feet of Jesus who has given us everything and just step into what he's inviting us into. What would happen if we did that as a church? Like what would happen if we didn't just rest at a few moments of generosity or a few nights of prayer, but we became a people of active dependence day after day, year after year for the next however many decades we get together? I think we would see the kingdom come in radical ways. Like in Acts, the beginning of Acts, where people are coming to Jesus day after day because they're watching this church community live differently. I think your neighbors would want in when they see how you and your friends love each other because Jesus loves you. I think we would send missionaries and church plants like crazy because we wouldn't be so attached to the toys we have, but, but we want treasure in heaven. We want to be in on other people getting that too. I think we'd be sending people like crazy and supporting them like crazy on and on because we just want in on what Jesus has. I think we'd be a light to our neighborhood and our city, not because we're flashy, not because we're cool, not because we have the best whatever, but because our hearts are captured by Jesus, hearts that Jesus looks down and goes, there's something there that I love. I think the watching world would say, there's something you have that I don't have. What is it?
and we get to worship Jesus with them. I, I want that. I want more of that with you. Let's pray that Jesus does that in us more together today. Let's do it. Let's pray. Jesus, with my friends, I confess my independence. There's so often I don't give or I don't pray because I'm so busy trying to work, work out my own life or my own security or my own comfort or my own status. I believe the lie that if I, if I seek money and possessions, I'll find the blessing when it can only come from you, Jesus. But God, thank you for the ways that you are making us a generous and a prayerful church already. Thank you for the ways you've captured our hearts and you're continuing to show us a bigger vision of what you're inviting us into, not just a ticket to heaven someday, but life with you now. Enjoy at the finish line. So today, wherever you've been pressing on our hearts, would you speak there with your grace and your kindness and invite us in. Invite us into life with you now, Jesus. You were the first that became last for us. Would you help us to meet you for who you are as our Lord and Savior? We pray in your name. Amen. Docs of family, it is fitting for us to respond to this passage with communion. Communion is a picture of Jesus being the first becoming last for us. On the night he was betrayed, his body was broken for your sin. To settle the debt that you owe, that you could never pay your way out of. He took the cup and, and he told his disciples, this is my blood shed for the new covenant. Your standing before God and his people is not based on what you wear or what you've done, but the robe of righteousness that Jesus earned that he gave to you. So over the next couple of songs, I just want to invite you into something. As the band plays, as we, get, as we get ready, if there's been something that God's been pressing into your heart to confess to him, would you take a moment and do that? And then when you're ready, would you come up to the family table, take communion, celebrate how Jesus made it possible for you to be in his kingdom and how we get to walk in dependence on him. There's four stations around the, t the room. Over the next couple songs, confess to him and come celebrate what he did as we sing back to our good Savior.